Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Father God, we invite you now by the words of our mouths to speak from the word of your mouth. Father, grant us the humility that we need and the grace to hear what you would say to us this morning. Lord, would you move us with this truth? Would you take what is eternal and unchanging, your very word, and would you plant it deep in us so that as we change, we change to be more like you? Father, build your church. Make us a part of that process, Father, and and may we respond this morning to what you have, and may we respond in faith, faith that glorifies you through Christ our Lord. Amen. You can be seated, and as you're getting settled, if you want to follow along with where we're going this morning, as, um, as Jim read for us, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 11, a great, great passage, a passage worth spending a lot of time on. If you need food for your meditation, this is a good one. If you just need something that you can sink your teeth into um, for a while, feel free to pull this out over the course of the next few weeks and go back over this chapter and be encouraged and be challenged. So as we dive into Hebrews 11, we're going to be looking at some aspects of what it means to follow Jesus. Um, Part of what we're doing this summer as uh, we kind of wind our way through the summer months of people coming and going and being on trips and being with family and people visiting and popping in and out, uh, we're taking some time to just reflect on what does it mean to follow Jesus in different ways. And so Ted, Paul did a great job of opening up our our series talking about what does it mean to follow Jesus practically on a day-to-day level? What does it mean to follow Jesus relationally? What does it look like for us as a church to follow Him? And then what does it look like to, to follow Him in different aspects of life, in different relationships, whether it's friends or family or workplace or school or neighborhoods or whatever? How do we follow Jesus? And this morning, We're going to turn more toward, as you can see from our passage, what does it mean to follow Jesus in faith? Next week, um, Lord willing, I get to come back up and share a bit more of following Jesus. And at that point, we'll look at what does it look like to follow Jesus in obedience. But I think to get us started, both for this week and next week, what I want to do is, is give you an image to to ponder a little bit. Take an image of a coin. On one side of the coin, we've got the word faith. On the other side of the coin, we have the word obedience. I want to think about the idea of this coin, not as a coin that you would flip, like, you know, I need a coin to decide yes or no, heads or tails, do I do it or don't I do it. This is a coin, this, this idea of a coin is one that I want us to think about in the way that these things, faith and obedience, being opposite sides of the very same coin, aren't able to be separated. You can't have 
um, a one-sided coin that has heads but no tails. I mean, yeah, you can have like heads on both sides, but that's not really a one-sided coin. That's just a cheater. <laughs> you, you can't take and divide it because the minute you try to divide it, what have you got? You got two coins with two sides and so on, right? You can't divide this coin, faith and obedience. They go together. And so as we talk about one, it's going to lead into the other. And as we look at one side of the coin, we're going to be impacted by the other. In fact, as your faith grows, so your obedience grows. You don't get to have a lopsided coin, one side, one side bigger than the other. And as your obedience grows, your faith grows. And I want to, I want to plant that seed because this morning we're going to focus on faith alone, and there's a risk in that. The risk is that by focusing solely on faith, we, we walk down the road of hypocrisy. We, we could end up saying, well, it doesn't really matter what I do, it only matters what I profess to do or claim to believe, and that's hypocrisy. And next week when we turn and look at the other side of the coin and we look at obedience and we say, well, it really doesn't matter so much what I believe as much as what I do, well, then we become legalists who are focused on how do I win my way into the kingdom by looking good and doing good. And I don't want us to fall into to either ditch on the side of the road, so to speak. And so walking down the, the narrow path, keep this image in your mind. Faith is one side, obedience is the other. And so this morning, we'll talk about faith, but remember, we're staring at one side of the coin. All right? We'll flip it over next week. But to stare at that side for a few minutes together, we look at Hebrews chapter 11. And as we dive in, we see the richness that's found in this passage in the very first verse. We see that our author first explains faith to us. What is this thing that we're going to talk about for the next several minutes? Well, he gives us a definition. And we would do very well to spend some time burning this definition into our brains. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. So as we walk through this passage and we see the word faith repeated, in fact, if, you, if we were to open this up to the entire chapter, the word faith appears over two dozen times in 40 verses. You think he's trying to make a point. So as we see this word faith, have this in mind, assurance of things hoped for, convictions of things that we do not see. And sometimes we'll, we'll talk about faith and belief sort of interchangeably. That's okay. Um, what do you believe? In what do you place your hope or your faith? What do you expect to come to pass? But it's more than just, yeah, it might happen or it might not happen. It's a conviction. It's knowing that even though I can't see it or taste it or touch it or hear it or smell it, yet it is true. What truth overwhelms you with that kind of conviction? In what do you place your faith? There's an analogy that people use quite often. It's helpful. It's not perfect. And, and it's the simple analogy of saying to a group of folks, okay, everybody walked in here, and as you look around, you notice you've all managed to sit, right? And I'm fairly certain that 
most of you, with maybe one or two odd exceptions, um, did very little to figure out if that chair that you've planted yourself in was going to support you. You walked in, you plopped down. You didn't do a, a, an integrity a study on the metal. You didn't do a structural analysis of the form and the shape and the function. Um, I don't know, did Alistair do that? No? Okay. <laughs> the physicists among us might. But most of us wouldn't. And so, we just plop down. Were you sure of what you hoped for and certain of what you couldn't really see that that, that little metal and rubber thing would manage to prevent the entire gravitational force of the planet Earth from pulling you down for a moment. That's a lot of faith. And yet we think nothing of it, we just drop ourselves. And I know that's something of a simple analogy, maybe it's um, silly in some sense, but it, but it does illustrate a point. The point is this. We walk into a room like this, we see a chair like we've sat on dozens, hundreds of times, and we plop down. Why? Because our experience tells us to trust it. We can look backwards, and we can see how time and time again, we've been well supported, and so this time will be no different. We can look back on what has happened to us yesterday, and the day before, and a year ago, and many years ago, and we can know from what we have seen, that, that thing we can't see, the structural integrity of the chair, we can trust it because we've come to trust it by what's happened to us time and time again. Hebrews 11 is that. It's how do we know what faith is? We know what faith is because we look backwards and we see that time and time again something has happened. Time and time again, God has done something. And guess what? He's still doing it. And tomorrow He will too. And the next day and on into eternity. And so the way that we grow in our faith by looking at this chapter is we start with what is faith, that assurance of things that we cannot see, and then we look at examples. And we see how faith is demonstrated over and over and over again. And those demonstrations of faith start immediately. Verses 2 and 3. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So, verse 2 sets the stage for the chapter, right? We're going to talk about these people of old, and verse 3 grounds those examples in something that is all around us all the time. We don't have Abraham and Moses and Enoch all with us today. We have their story, but what do we have today? We look around us and we see the amazing work of God's creation. Is it possible to explain this work of creation by scientific methods and experiments and processes? No. Why? Could you put creation in a lab? No. Why? Because in order to have the lab, you have to create it. How do you create something out of nothing? I don't know. 
But God does. He speaks, and it happens. And, and Hebrews says, look around you. The incredible creative power of God's Word is on display all around you. And do you ever wonder why men and women who are so incredibly intelligent and understand such intricate, powerful scientific truths don't get creation? They don't have faith. Faith is being certain of what you can't see. Creation is making something out of nothing. Creation itself demonstrates this faith for us. But we have many more verses that demonstrate it in many more ways. We see these people of old who were commended by God for their faith. What's a commendation? What does that mean to be commended? A commendation is a, a reward. Giving something in return for something that you deserve in some way. God commends. We might see the, the mayor of the city give a commendation to a citizen who's done something really good for the community. We might see a, um, an officer commend a soldier for a, a heroic act on the field of battle. God commends. But God does not commend for your heroic act. He commends for the faith that you have in doing that heroic act. And so as we look at these people of old, consider this. Our, our point is, as we look back at what God has done, we can trust what God will do. And so we start with Abel, right after creation, right? Second generation. He gave a sacrifice that was pleasing. Why? Because it was beautiful, because it was more costly, because it was some thing that was much better than his brothers? No. Because it was given in faith. Enoch, this mysterious man from ancient days who was allowed to leave the earth without tasting death here and was taken up into eternity. Why? Because of his faith. And countless repetition over and over we see hero after hero of the faith who's commended by God because of what he or she believed. Is it really that easy? Is faith alone enough? All I have to do is believe? Don't forget the coin. We're looking at one side. We're looking at faith, and we're going to turn it over and look at obedience. You can't separate the two. In God's reality, Asking the question, can I just get by on faith alone, is like asking the question, can I flip a one-sided coin? It doesn't work. And we'll see why next week. But for now, we start with faith because Hebrews starts with faith. Look at verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And so, Hebrews tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God. In fact, it's impossible to even approach God. 
but with faith. It's not only possible, but we are empowered with faith. Not only can we please Him, but He will commend us. We get a, a little bit of a hint of how this plays out as we, as we continue on, as we march through our heroes of the faith. How does this faith allow us to accomplish anything? Allow us to obey, to do, to act, to please God. Look at Abraham. Our chapter spends a lot of time dwelling on Abraham. He's a great example. He did much out of faith, probably much more than we even realize. Why? What motivated Abraham? Verse 10 tells us that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was called to leave his home. God said to Abraham, I want you to go from where you know, from where you're comfortable, from where you've lived your life, and I want you to leave. And I want you to live on the move. I want you to go, and you're going to be intense, and you're going to be nomadic, and you're going to wander, and I'm going to take you someplace, and it's going to be wonderful. And he had no idea where he would end up when he left. And yet, Abraham, in faith, knew that this God could be trusted, and so he went. Why? Because his eyes were not on the cities of this world. They weren't on the home that he lived in. His eyes were on the city that God was building. His eyes were on the one who creates something out of nothing so that he could be certain of what he couldn't see, this land that he would end up in someday, because of what he could see, that God the Creator was doing and working and performing. And Abraham knew that this all-knowing, all-powerful God could create an entire universe out of nothing, and when that God said, go, you went. Such was the faith of Abraham and our passage tells us that was the faith of Sarah, and that was the faith of Isaac, and that was the faith of Jacob, and that was the faith of Joseph, and it should be our faith. It should be the faith that moves us to say, God, where would you send me? What would you have me to do? How is it, Lord, that I can please you? I can't see you, but I know you. And so I trust you. I have a hope, God, that where you are taking me is a city built on a foundation that cannot be moved. And my faith assures me of that hope. The call of God is not a simple call to answer. If you think about it, this faith may play itself out in different ways. After all, Noah didn't do what Abraham did, right? The faith that they shared, the common faith in the same God, didn't play itself out in their lives the same way because God had a different purpose for each of them. What does this look like for us? Will God call us to go and live in tents in a strange land? Well, maybe. In fact, some of us have already gone to do just that. 
but not all of us. Will God call us to build a giant boat? I'm not about to presume on what God will or won't do. But more than likely, God is going to call us to do things not so far from where we are, but close. But I can tell you this, God is not going to call you to do something that you can just do. Do you think it was easy for Noah to spend a hundred years of his life building this giant boat in a land that had never seen water? Do you think there was a bit of, oh, jeering and laughing and talking and harassing? How easy would it be, women, if you make it to 90, to hear from God that at age 90 you're going to give birth to your first child, even though all of your life you've tried and failed? How easy is it to say that one child, the only child, I want you to give that child back to God as a sacrifice? How easy is it for Joseph to submit himself to the rulers of pagan Egypt for a time when he doesn't even know why he's there and won't know because he dies before the end. Faith is not demonstrated by things that we can do. If everything God asks you to do was within your ability, who would know God was involved in the first place? If faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen, and you walked in here and you spent the first hour disassembling a chair and testing the strength of the metal and the components and all of those things. And, and then we brought in a lecturer who could give you wonderful diagrams on how chairs function and how, how gravity is served and all of these things. And after an hour, you gingerly put your hands down and then sort of tested the weight. And then eventually you got around to the front and you kind of squatted a bit. And then finally, after a good 30 minutes, you let your entire weight rest on the chair. What faith is that? It's not faith. That's just knowing what you know. The chair's going to work. Now, I'm not suggesting that faith means that we run out and do crazy things that we hope we survive. But faith is knowing I'm going to be put in a place where I'm not sure what the outcome's going to be. In fact, if the chair falls, the outcome could hurt. But God has said He will support me. God has said, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I'm going to keep doing it, now go do it. Faith, by its very definition, demands that we be put to the test. Because if we are not tested, we have not demonstrated faith. We have simply done what we do. And God receives no glory from what I do. So the minute that I say, Lord, I have faith, I believe, I am saying, Father, I want you to accomplish something in me that is entirely beyond what I can accomplish on my own. 
And church, we cannot shrink back when God calls us to do that which we cannot do on our own. In fact, we must celebrate what God can do and what God is doing and what God will do that we cannot do. But if God is going to push us out of our comfort zone, how do we prepare ourselves? How do we answer that call of God, whether it's to go and live in tents or whether it's to speak out to a neighbor who needs to know the gospel or whether it's to stand up and lead a room full of people in worship or whatever it is? How is it that we prepare ourselves for that call? We'll consider Abraham's example. Where are your eyes? Are your eyes on this world's resources and your abilities and your own devices? Or are your eyes on the city that God has designed and built that cannot be moved or shaken? Hmm. We know the one who holds the universe together by the strength of His will. The one who holds everything together by the power of what is unseen. We have been given a faith that can move mountains. Don't let us squander it by kicking over anthills. When we know God has done something incredible, then we know that God is at work not us. And only when the world sees this true faith, this demonstration of who God is and what He's capable of, only then will they marvel at the God that we serve. Until then, we're just another group of people doing what we do. But we've got to be a little bit careful here. Along the way of demonstrating this faith and along the way of doing what God calls us to do, there is a trap that waits for the unwary. And, and I say it's a trap that waits for the unwary, and, and it's something that we can see around us every day. We see it in our culture, but it's something that's not new. It's something that has been a lie from Satan himself, perhaps from the dawn of time, and certainly early on in our stories of the heroes of the faith. The world around us knows this lie, and they embrace it, and the lie is simply this, that faith is the thing that matters. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Because I've just spent the last how many minutes telling you that faith is the key. It's not faith itself that matters, it's where that faith is anchored that matters. You can have faith in anything, but if your faith is anchored in weak, powerless, incapable gods, then you're weak, you're powerless, you're incapable. And I say this is not new because you look in in our story, Moses encountered this. We skip ahead to verse 23. We see that the story of Moses is repeated for us in summary fashion. By faith, 
Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of heaven. I'm sorry, of Egypt. (laughs) Don't tell anybody I said that. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses was a Hebrew, born to Hebrew slaves, but raised by an Egyptian princess. Eventually, he abandons the privilege of his Egyptian upbringing, his Egyptian royalty, and he flees. Later, he would return to lead the Hebrew nation out of slavery as a Hebrew. And he does this all by faith. All by faith. So where's the lie? Think about where he is. Consider the Egyptians. Do we have any ancient historians among us? Were the Egyptians people of faith? Huh. Oh, yeah. The Egyptians had gods for everything. Dozens, hundreds. They knew that the sun came up and went down because a god raised it and lowered it. They knew that water nourished the body because a god caused it to happen. In fact, they believed their king was a god. They believed in the afterlife. The Egyptians probably did more than any other culture up to that point to prepare people for the afterlife. The body was prepared. The the possessions were prepared. Spiritual rights were given. These were people who believed in an eternity. These were people of faith. In fact, the Egyptians had their own versions of prophets, magicians, and sorcerers. And they could do the same miraculous things that God's prophets could do, at least to a certain extent. Let me see, you drop your staff and turn it into a snake. But the Egyptians could. These were people of faith. So why is their faith different than Moses' faith? Why is it that verse 28 tells us that Moses' faith saved him from death? from the destroyer who took the firstborn, and yet all over the land of Egypt, families were weeping and mourning because firstborns were dying in spite of their faith. The answer is not faith itself, it's the object of faith. It's true we're saved by faith, yes. It's true that we can dare great things because of the faith that we have, yes. But those things are only true because our faith is anchored in the same place that Moses' faith was anchored thousands of years ago. The Egyptians believed this lie that our culture still believes. The lie is simply, just believe, period. It really doesn't matter what you believe in as long as you believe it. How often have you heard that? 
It's the moral of the story or the end of the movie or the song that is sung. We live in a world wherein we are actually encouraged to have faith. That's a good thing, except the faith that's encouraged by our world is not the faith that God demands, because God demands a faith in Him, not in anything. And so, what's, what's so deceitful and what's a bit frightening about this lie is we could read Hebrews 11 through those eyes and think, it's true. Look, all these people believed in something and good things happened. We could take this Scripture passage and we could twist it to fit that lie. Well, until you get to verse 26. Does it strike you as a bit odd? Verse 26, he considered, that's Moses now, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward at what point did Moses meet Jesus? I know you're all spinning back through your Old Testament. Um, don't know. Moses didn't know Jesus, not in the sense that we can know Jesus, because Jesus hadn't yet come as a man. But Moses knew God, and Moses knew that God was working a plan, and Moses knew that God's plan involved a Messiah. That's what Christ means, that word. Christ, Messiah, Savior. God's chosen one. The one who would come to save God's people. And Moses knew that God's plan involved this Messiah, this Christ, who would somehow do away with sin and death and the curse that had plagued man from the beginning. And somehow, this Savior would be a king who would rule all other kings. And somehow, Moses knew that he could look at Pharaoh, believed to be a god by his people, and say, you are nothing. Because God's king is coming. That is a king worth putting your faith in. And this is what anchored Moses' faith this is what must anchor our faith. This is what anchored Abraham's faith as it says that Abraham had his eyes fixed not here on this planet, but on what God was doing that could not be seen. They both knew that the gods of this world had only a false hope and no real ability to do anything. And they both knew that the only assurance that we have is in the one true God his Christ, His Messiah, His Savior, His King. So where's our faith anchored? Don't let your mind go where Satan would take it, where the spirit of this age would, would pull it. That it's really not who you believe in as long as you believe. No. It all depends on who you believe in. And we've got to pray that God will guard us from such wrong thinking. Do you know the assurance of things hoped for? The conviction of things not seen? You only know those things if you know 
that Jesus Christ is the anchor of those things that are unseen, of that hope that we hold so dear. Jesus Christ and no other. And if you're a little like me at all, you sit through this kind of a talk and and you say, yes, I believe, yes, my faith is strong. God, I love you and I want to know more about you and and I trust you and, and this is energizing and encouraging and edifying and that's what the Word should be. And then Monday shows up and hits you square in the face. And maybe your faith tomorrow isn't as strong as it was today. Or maybe Monday's okay, but Wednesday afternoon gets you right between the eyes. Or maybe it's Friday night when you're just exhausted. Or you're ready to go do something that's a little bit more entertaining and a little bit more free-spirited or whatever. But at some point during the week, your faith falters a bit because you're not sitting here worshiping, enjoying the fellowship of the saints, and our faith can grow weak. So what do we do to strengthen this faith of ours? What do we do to be faithful like Abraham and Moses and Enoch and all the rest? All of whom, by the way, the Bible records their incredible acts of faith and their incredible acts of sin. God does not give us a one-sided perspective of His heroes. He shows us how Moses murdered a man. He shows us how Abraham did not trust God, but made up stories about his own wife out of fear of an earthly king. Just in case you think, I'm not good enough for that kind of faith, it's good enough for the murderers and the deceivers among us. So what do we do to strengthen this faith, us murderers and deceivers? Well, let me suggest, first of all, we need to start with a bit of honesty. A bit of honesty about where are we in our faith? Does our faith empower us? Does our faith bring us strength? Do we understand that the God of all things does things that cannot be done merely in our own power? And sometimes we're trapped in that first step of honest reflection And it's just the fear that we can't get beyond. Some of us are trapped by hopelessness. And you've got to recognize that fear and that hopelessness for what it is. It's a lie. When when your brain is telling you, I can't or I won't because I don't know how, you've got to recognize that Christ says, you're right, you won't. I will. You can't do all things. You can do all things through Christ. Sometimes we forget this or we're distracted by this, and so fear takes us captive and faith takes a back seat. What do we do? Let me suggest something, and actually I'm going to go back to something that Ted shared, if you want to throw up that little slide of the the diagram that Ted gave us as he started off this series. Ted talked about how we can follow Jesus through some of these things by 
the Word and, and uh, by speaking and praying and, and by living out our faith. Let me suggest that this little diagram that Ted offered us gives us some great ways to think about faith, especially the weakness of our faith. Two words up there, word, that would be God's word, and prayer, that would be interacting with God through God's word and through your own. So when that fear takes hold or when you're not certain about whether God can actually do what God says He can do or whether you're just intimidated because sometimes being out of your comfort zone Well, usually, being out of your comfort zone is an intimidating thing. Do what so many other saints have done before us. Bathe yourself in the reminders of what faith looks like. You know, it's no accident that so many psalms contains words like, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Do you really think David needed to tell his soul to bless the Lord? Yeah, he did. David, the one who wrote so many of those songs of praise and adoration, had to remind himself, oh yeah, I need to worship. Oh yeah, I need to praise. Oh yeah, soul of mine, you're weak. How do we do that? We bathe ourselves in the Word. Why does the Apostle Paul say that the gospel that saves you is also the gospel that sanctifies you? Because sometimes you just need to say it over and over and over. We are a forgetful people. And so every day, we need to remind ourselves, what has God done? And by looking back at what God has done, we can be assured of the hope at what God is doing. By bathing ourselves in the Word, the, the, the places in the Scriptures that give us these examples, the places in the Scriptures that tell us what God has done and what He will do. Sometimes our faith just needs to be stretched. Sometimes it's like our muscles that grow weak or don't quite do the things that we want them to do, and so what's the best way to strengthen them and stretch them and get them to do the things they need to do? We use them. We step out, small steps at first, bigger steps later, but exercise that faith. And when your faith is weak, ask yourself, how much time have I spent sitting in this nice, comfortable place where I don't really need to trust God all that much because I'm getting pretty good at doing what I need to do right here? And when the faith that you have feels like it's not really doing much, ask yourself, is that because I don't need it to do much? And maybe you need to look for that place where you can step out and say, okay, this is where God will call me to exercise that faith, and only by exercising it will it grow. The Word and prayer are fantastic ways to grow this faith of ours. We'll talk next time about the other side of the coin and we'll see how living and speaking fit. Because as your faith grows and your obedience grows, these things 
all grow together. But between now and then, let me just end with this idea. As you bathe yourself in the Word and as you ask God to give you examples of faith that you can look backwards on so that you can look forward to what He is going to do, there's one prayer that's probably the prayer that, other than forgive me, Lord, it's probably the prayer I've prayed most in my life, and it comes from Mark chapter 9. And it's a, it's a desperate dad who goes to Jesus with a child possessed by a demon, and the demon is doing awful things to this child. And the dad says, Jesus, fix this. I can't, but you can. And Jesus sort of rebukes the man because of the way he appro- he's approached and, and says, hmm, what sort of faith do you have? In the simple little prayer, he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. I do believe, but help my unbelief. Pray that with me. Father, we do believe We have faith, but Lord, our faith is weak. Lord, would you strengthen it? Would you help our unbelief? Would you rid us of unbelief and replace it with faith in the only one who truly matters? Father, would you show us where our faith is in the wrong things, in ourselves, in the world, in our riches, in our own abilities, and take those things away, God. Would you put us in places where we must exercise our faith so that it will grow? And Father, we know that's a dangerous prayer. And God, we can look back at what you have done in this church body. You've done amazing, miraculous things, and we can know that your work will continue. We can look forward with the eyes that see the city of God that has a foundation that cannot be moved. And Father, I pray that when our eyes stray, that you would bring us back time and time again, so that we know you are a God who can be trusted with all that we are and all that we have. Father, through Christ, this is our plea. Make us believe. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.